Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning from Joshua chapter 15. We're just reading a smattering of verses, really just three verses this morning to give a little bit of, of biblical history uh, to a little bit of background uh, to what will take place in our sermon passage. And our sermon passage this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 to 16. So Joshua 15 verses 1, 6, and 63, that's our scripture reading, very brief. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel 5 verses 1 to 16. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. Treat it as if it is God speaking to you, because it is. He is talking to you through His Word. This is how He speaks to His people here on earth. And it is a great blessing to us to hear His Word read in the assembly. So, Scripture reading Joshua 15, verses 1, 6, and 63. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, at the farthest south. And the boundary goes up to Beth Hoglah and passes along north of Beth Arabah. And the boundary goes up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we'll begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 16. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it, the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Haram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. 
Our gracious God, you have indeed blessed us with your word. Lord, it is more than we can take in all at once, and so we're thankful that we get to receive it in portions, in bite-sized chunks. But we know, dear Lord, that your word is rich, that it is good for us, beneficial. It is meat for our souls. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to take your word in, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we would know that it is you who is speaking to us. We pray, Lord, now for this congregation as the word is preached. We pray for us, O Lord, that we would receive your word, that we would hear it. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the one who preaches, that you would bless the ones who hear and receive. We ask, O Lord, that you would use the preaching of your word to sustain us in our faith, to convict us of our sin, to help us in our walk with Christ. We pray, O Lord, that we would be urged on as we make our journey to our heavenly home, to heavenly Jerusalem. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the events in our passage this morning, they described in a fairly understated way, these events that are described in a fairly understated way are among the most consequential events in world history. The ascension to the throne of a now united kingdom of Israel and Judah by David and the establishment of the city of Jerusalem as his royal city have had religious, political, and military consequences, among others, for all time, ever since. That narrow strip of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea was an essential overland route between the African and the European continents, and it would become extremely important to the Greek and the Roman empires. And David's decision to make Jerusalem the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel ensured that the Jewish people would be at the center of some of the most important events in history. This small group of people who would have existed in relative obscurity had it not been for where God providentially placed them in geography. They became central to events that have happened ever since. But this city of Jerusalem was of great significance to God's Old Testament people long before David moved his headquarters there. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that when Solomon began to build the temple in Jerusalem, that would take place after David's death, of course, after Sol Solomon had ascended the throne, he selected Mount Moriah as the temple mount. Now, who can remember what the significance of Mount Moriah is? Well, as many of you know, this was the location where Abraham was instructed to and intended to sacrifice Isaac about a thousand years earlier. But even before that, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, God tells Abraham that his offspring, that Abraham's offspring will be given the land of Canaan. And then he runs through the list of all of the Canaanite peoples and the last of those peoples in Genesis 15, 21 are the Jebusites. Now another name for Jerusalem is Jebus. Named after the inhabitants of the people or perhaps the people were named after the city itself. It's hard to tell. So even for David at this time, it had religious significance, but it also, for David, had political and strategic significance. 
Jerusalem was, practically speaking, on the border between the northern tribes of Israel, that is of Benjamin, which belonged to the north, of course the tribe of, of Saul, and the southern tribes of Judah. And so it was a shrewd move politically to place the capital city in a central location easily accessible from the north or the south, and that both the north and the south could claim as its own. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But first, I would ask you to consider this, this thought. Hold this before you. It's a little longer than normal. Some of you wordsmiths out there could probably condense this down to a a more concise statement. But let me uh, give you the, the purpose statement, the proposition this morning that will guide us as we work our way through the sermon passage. David, the Lord's anointed, ascended the throne of Israel and conquered Jerusalem so that his son Jesus, the Lord's anointed, could conquer sin by ascending the cross. I'll say that one more time. I know there may be a couple of you writing it down. I'll say it one more time, perhaps a little more slowly. David, the Lord's anointed, ascended the throne of Israel and conquered Jerusalem so that his son Jesus, the Lord's anointed, could conquer sin by ascending the cross. Well, the sermon today has three points, three parts. The first, the shepherd of Israel. The second, a whole host of help. And the third, Yahweh establishes his king. Again, the first part of the sermon, the shepherd of Israel. The second, a whole host of help. And the third, Yahweh establishes his king. Just a, a brief Recap here at the very beginning of, of the first point. Following Ishbosheth's murder and David's quick dispensing of the men responsible, the elders of Israel went to Hebron to make David their king. And those events we've covered in previous weeks, but you basically remember the, the general outline of what, what happened. Abner, of course, promised David that he would give Israel to David. Abner was murdered by Joab. Abner was taken out of the picture. And so now after Ishbosheth, Saul's son, after he has been murdered by these two men uh, that we read about in last week's sermon, now the elders of Israel, they come to David. Abner is not there to make David the king of Israel. Abner is, is deceased. He has no ability to be the guy in charge, the guy behind the main guy, as he was with Ishbosheth, and as he clearly wanted to be with David. And so verse 1 says that all of the tribes came to David there at Hebron, and verse 3 makes it clear that it was all the elders. They were serving as representatives of the tribes of the northern kingdom. And they reminded David that they were all of the same people. They were his bone and his flesh. Now, Months prior to that, years prior to that, when Saul was chasing after David, trying to kill him, they probably weren't saying exactly the same things. But here they recognize that they're all one people. They're all the people of God. And what's more, they remembered that Yahweh had said that David would be the shepherd of the people of Israel, the prince over them. Now, as a younger man, David became famous as the shepherd who killed Goliath. And now the Israelite leaders are requesting that he become their shepherd and the shepherd of all of Israel. They remember how David, when Saul was incapacitated for one reason or another, that David was the one who led Saul's men out to war and back in. Now we don't think often enough of our elected officials as 
public servants. And it seems like they never think of themselves that way either. But it seems even more strange to think of a king as a servant. But that's exactly what is implied by the Israelite elders' use of shepherd here. Everyone, it seems, wants to be a king or a queen because our understanding is that they are the ones being served, not the ones who are serving. They have great wealth. Their throne sits over a pile of riches. But biblical kingship was one of service. A king was expected to lead his army into battle. And there are vestiges of this way of thinking still with the modern monarchy in England today, perhaps in other places. But as you all probably are aware, Prince Charles and his sons, they all served in the military at one point or another. Some of them served in combat. The Israelite elders knew that David was not averse to service. They said to David in verse 2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. There were times when Saul simply was not serving as the top general of his army. He should have been, but he wasn't. He often led from the rear, staying behind the garrison. And as we'll see later on in 2 Samuel, David was not immune to this either, at least would not be immune to this. The biggest trouble of David's life happened when his army went out on military campaigns and he stayed at home in Jerusalem. Now the elders had come to Hebron to make David king, but verse 3 says that it was David who made a covenant with them. And following the covenant ceremony, the elders anointed David king over Israel. Verses 4 and 5 are a historical note by the author stating that David was 33 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years in all, seven and a half years over Judah and then 33 years over Judah and Israel. And as one commentator pointed out, David was 10 years younger than Ishbosheth, that is Saul's son who reigned in uh, Israel, 10 years younger than Ishbosheth when he became king and reigned 20 times longer than Ishbosheth. And this commentator continues on, the sum of 30 plus 40 is 10 times the sacred number 7. Now this highlights once again what we've seen before about the house of Saul undergoing a dramatic decline and while David's house was increasing, was growing, was expanding, was being blessed. Everything was falling into place for David because God's hand of providence was guiding all things for him. Even the evil of Joab murdering Abner was used by God to bring about good, not only for David, but more importantly, for God's people. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, a whole host of help. This transition from verse 5 to verse 6 marks a major shift in the book of 2 Samuel. You see it just a little bit there in chapter 5, in verse 5. Where it says, at Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And so the verses that follow give the detail, at least in some sense, of what happened. How it was that, that, uh, that David came uh, to reign in Jerusalem. It's noteworthy that it isn't noted with the start of a new chapter in our Bibles. And in the case of the ESV and the King James Version and the New American Standard, it's not even noted as a section heading. Now, if you've got an NIV in front of you, if you've got a New King James Version, they do give a hint to the fact that something significant is taking place by titling this section that begins with verse 6 as the conquest of Jerusalem or David's conquest of Jerusalem. So there is an important shift that's taking place. Dale Davis in his commentary points out in a footnote 
on this section, quoting John Bright that Hebron is too far south in the midst of Judah to be acceptable to the northern tribes, and a capital in the north would have been unacceptable to Judah. Gibeah, the capital city of Israel under Saul, would not have worked at all for the Judahites. And so Jerusalem, placed as it was on the border between Judah and Benjamin, was an excellent compromise, as Davis puts it. In fact, there's a sense in which Jerusalem belonged both to Judah and Benjamin. We saw from one of the verses that we read out of Joshua chapter 15, verse 8, that the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern border of the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem, and the boundary goes up to the top of the mountain that lies over the valley of Hinnom on the west at the northern end of the valley of Rephaim. But in chapter 18 of the book of Joshua, we read about the land allotment to Benjamin, Saul's tribe. And listen to this. In verse 16 of chapter 18 of Joshua, it says this. Then the boundary goes down to the border of the mountain that overlooks the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is at the north end of the valley of Rephaim. And then it goes down the valley of Hinnom, south of the shoulders of the Jebusites. And if you've got a Bible that has a a map in the back that shows the 12 tribes of Israel, you will see most of your maps ought to indicate that the border, the boundary between Benjamin to the north and Judah to the south, it runs right through the city. And so these descriptions in your maps, they show that the boundary runs through Jerusalem itself. This is further shown in Judges chapter, 12, chapter 1, verse 21, which says the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. You swap out the name Benjamin for Judah, and you'll hear almost the exact same verse in chapter 15, verse 63 of the book of Joshua. And so both Judah and Benjamin failed to drive out the Jebusites from the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, since the time of the original conquest of Canaan, was a city of two different tribes, eventually becoming a house divided, as it were, when the split between Israel and Judah took place. And so it made good political sense to serve as the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel, but it was also good strategic sense. One of the reasons that the Jebusites were never driven out of Jerusalem was because of what was mostly, uh, almost offhandedly described by David in verse 8 of our passage. Jerusalem, or at least the walled fortress within Jerusalem, had a well-protected water source. And this enabled the Jebusites to hole up within the stronghold for extended periods of time while the city was under siege. Whatever... The Israelites came to Canaan 200 years prior. Some, some, uh, some scholars believe that that was when the Jebusites dug this series of, of, of tunnels, of shafts, to get down to this pool of Gihon. This is also what made it such a strategic city for David to take. Not to mention the fact that Judah was still under the order to drive out the Jebusites. So verse 6 says that David and his men went to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites. And when they got there, the Jebusites taunted David, telling him and his men, you will not come in here, but the, blame, the blind and the lame will ward you off. What they meant was that the stronghold, the fortress of Jerusalem, was so impregnable in their minds, at least, that they could have blind and lame people, lame people manning the walls, manning the gates, and defend it, and David and his men still would not be able to take it from them. But there's this weakness, you see. There's a way in 
It's somewhat reminiscent of the Lord of the Rings. Somewhat reminiscent of that, that minor little weakness in the Great Wall outside of Helm's Deep, isn't it? No doubt Tolkien had this passage in mind as he wrote that part of the Lord of the Rings. Now, we're not told any details about it, but it's clear that David has been given some kind of intel about the fortress and its source of water because that is what he exploits in order to get into the fortress. He tells his men in verse 8, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Now, this presents for us a little bit of a challenge. The only other place where the word that's translated water shaft is used is in Psalm 42, verse 7. And there in the ESV, that word is translated waterfall. And so some translations have, some English versions have different translations of the word. The NIV, for instance, I think has a grappling hook. Use a grappling hook. But modern archaeology has helped us, I think, to land at the proper interpretation of this passage. Very little in terms of detail are given. Only what uh, David says there in verse 8. But this is apparently a reference to a system of tunnels running from the walled fortress within the city of Jerusalem down to the Gihon Spring. And those tunnels have been excavated in the past 100 years. And though it would have been very difficult for David and his men to use them, it might have been thought impossible. Clearly it was thought impossible by the Jebusites in this walled fortress. It wasn't impossible for his men. The most difficult part of The travel was a 50-foot, entirely vertical shaft, which is known as Warren's Shaft. He was a a British explorer who found it, who discovered it. And this shaft was used by the people of the city to drop buckets down into the spring that was far below. There's also a final near-vertical tunnel that they would have needed to climb to get in. It was about 65 feet long, this tunnel. Not quite completely vertical, slightly slanted, but it had steps cut into the limestone to make it easier for the Jebusites to get down to get water during a time of great need. And in fact, from what I read, some of you perhaps have been to Jerusalem, you maybe have seen those very steps in that tunnel. But our passage remarkably doesn't go into any detail about how it was done. We're having to use archaeology to help us interpret what took place. In fact, it's not even certain that this is the way that David and his men got into the city, even though it's very likely. The biblical author didn't consider the way that David and his men took the city to be worthy of description. We're simply told in verse 6 that the Jebusites thought, we're told what they thought, David cannot come in here. And then in verse 7, we read, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. The Jebusites thought one thing. The Lord knew something completely different. And and as an aside here, this is the first time that the word Zion is used in the Bible. The most important part is what we read in verse 10. And David became greater and greater for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, you know, very frequently, we as a good reformed church, we sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And every so often, especially those who are somewhat new to the hymn, some of our younger folks, we get to that one word in that hymn and nobody knows how to pronounce it, especially when you're younger, you finally figure out Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. 
And what's being referred to there, both in a mighty fortress, it's a biblical name for the Lord. What's being referred to is the fact that God, Yahweh, is the Lord of his heavenly army. Speaking of his angels, those who rush to the defense of the ones who belong to the Lord. And so this is a subtle hint, I think, in verse 10, that it wasn't David's military might. It wasn't the great intel that he received about the weakness of of the Jebusite's fortress within Jerusalem that enabled David to be victorious where all of Judah and all of Benjamin in the past had failed. Yahweh, the God of hosts, that is the God of his heavenly army, was with David. The Lord's angels were fighting on behalf of David and his men, so of course he would be victorious. And based on the descriptions of this tunnel system that the Jebusites used, if it was in fact the point of entry for David and his men, it wasn't large enough for a huge host of men to get in. Probably a small unit, special forces, commando types would have gotten in and surprised the Jebusites from behind. This victory over Jerusalem is entirely attributed, attributable to Yahweh, to the Lord. The Lord had chosen David, so the Lord was on his side. But the next section that we get to makes it evident that it wasn't because of anything in David that God chose him to be king In fact, it was despite what was in David that God chose him to be king. And that takes us to the third point of the sermon. Yahweh establishes his king. The last few verses of our passage, they show how David prospered as king of Israel. Verse 11 says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. No doubt this king of Tyre, he wanted to be on good terms with the new king of the United Kingdom to his east. And this nice house of cedar will become a catalyst later on for David to want to build God a house in Jerusalem. And so Hiram would also send servants to Solomon who requested his help in building the temple in 1 Kings chapter 5. So Hiram built David a house, and verse 12 says, And David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God established David's kingdom, not for his sake. Not so that his name would continue on in perpetuity. Not so that he would be remembered all the way down to this day. But for the sake of of God's people. Now verses 14 and 15 and 16, they list the names of the children born to David in Jerusalem, 11 in all. And this too is an Old Testament indication of how God is prospering David. But there's a hint in there that not all is well with David. A hint that being the king of all Israel is beginning to go to his head. That hint is found in verse 13 which says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. The children born to David from his concubines, it sounds like a good thing. Scripture doesn't offer any negative commentary here in this passage. So we often are led to think, well, God must approve of what David is doing, right? This has led some to believe that, that things such as polygamy are still acceptable. But it's wrong. We think 
God blessed David with all of these children. Surely God must approve of all that David is doing. But God specifically told His people in Deuteronomy 17, 17, speaking of a future king, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. It's difficult to imagine that David, David, could legitimately claim ignorance about this verse. Deuteronomy 17 contains one of the few passages in all of the Bible that deals with laws concerning Israel's kings. It's hard to imagine that David didn't know about it. He's one of the first kings of God's people ever, that, that God's people ever had. But you can hear David saying as his excuse, Saul had multiple king, wives and concubines. And the reason that Abner ditched Ishbosheth and went to David was because Ishbosheth stood up to Abner over a concubine that Ishbosheth thought should have transferred from Saul after his death to Ishbosheth. Other kings around David in the surrounding area, they had concubines and many wives, so why couldn't David? And see, the Lord prospered David's hand in everything, so clearly it wasn't wrong for him to have wives and concubines. It seems as though David had become a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel believer before there really was such a thing. He was starting to look to his successes in life as an infallible sign that he was blessed by the Lord. He started to believe his own press. And brothers and sisters, you and I, we are not immune to this. We're not. It's very easy for us to begin to believe that when everything is going well in our lives, well, we must be doing something right. The Lord is blessing us. He's rewarding us for all of our labors and our works. And we look out around us and we see people who are suffering. We see people living on the streets and we say, well, see, they must be bad people. They're, they're worse than me. They're worse off than me, so that must mean they are worse than me. They're suffering because they've been bad. They've done wrong. It is a trap that we can fall into, that we can run headlong into willingly, and it's dangerous. As one pastor used to say, probably still does say, it smells like smoke and it's from the pit of hell or vice versa, but it's the truth. And that way of thinking leads people completely astray. It's not the gospel. And it's important that we point this out about David. David's sin here. David's sin when he began to take concubines and multiple wives, even while he was still in Judah, it lays the groundwork for the dissolution of his earthly kingdom later on. And as Dale Davis says so well, we must not mute the no. Here is both David's strength and his stupidity. And Davis goes on to say that pointing out David's blemishes should, should help to keep our tendency to Christian hero worship in check. We are just as prone to worshiping our human heroes as anyone else. We are. And we need to be very careful because if we are not, in a couple hundred years, we will have our very own reformed saints that we pray to and venerate and make statues of. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we have men to whom we look up. And we believe that they are infallible. And that their teaching is without error. And we are in danger of going too far in our admiration of these men. 
Davis continues later on, even David compromises and mars the kingdom over which he rules. Ultimately, the kingdom is only safe in the hands of David's descendant, who always does what pleases the father. That's from John chapter 8, verse 29. And that really is the point of this passage, I think. David, as the Lord's anointed with a lowercase a, is only here to point to his greater son, the Lord's anointed, with a capital A. Though David was certainly anointed by the Lord, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was anointed by Israel, these people, to be king. He was not Israel's nor our Messiah. David explicitly defied the law of God in this and many, many other ways. And in so doing, David showed through his actions that he was not the one Israel was looking for. So that we ought to honor David as a father in the faith, we do a great disservice by failing to acknowledge that he, too, was a great sinner in need of a Savior. And this points to something else that we are very prone to doing. When we were singing those hymns earlier in the service, singing about Jerusalem, How many of us were thinking about physical, earthly Jerusalem over in Israel right now? What this passage makes very clear is that just as David is not the Messiah, just as David is a a, a failed human being, so Jerusalem ultimately is not a physical place, but a spiritual place. Now, there are many, many within the church who believe that Israel, and especially Jerusalem, has got to be restored in the way that it was back before the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. They believe very firmly that this must happen. This is the only way. And they take passages in various places of the Bible clearly intended to be understood in a spiritual sense about spiritual Jerusalem, and they believe that they're referring to Jerusalem in a physical sense. This is simply not the case. The fall of Jerusalem multiple times throughout Israel's history shows that we are still waiting the heavenly Jerusalem. Physical Jerusalem was simply a sign that points to heavenly Jerusalem. It's not heaven here on earth. If King David needs a savior, this man after God's own heart, how much more do we? And if King David was living in a city that was not true, Israel, not, not true Jerusalem within true Israel, then how much more do we? Well, the answer to both of those questions is that we need it just as much as David. We're all sinners. David is no better than we are, no worse than we are. We are no better than him. But here's what we need to keep in mind. God used David to set the stage for the coming Messiah. He gave David to us to give to us the vocabulary to describe who Jesus is and what he came to do. If David was the shepherd king, then Jesus is the shepherd king par excellence. If David did what his father wanted him to do, his heavenly father wanted him to do, though imperfectly in many, many ways... 
Jesus did perfectly everything that his father desired him to do. Jesus showed what it means for a king truly to serve his people. He humbled himself by descending from his throne on high and became a servant, being lifted up on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all who believe in him. David exalted himself. Jesus Christ willingly humiliated himself. And the nadir of his humiliation, although we may turn it and twist it and say the apex, the high point of his humiliation was being lifted high on the cross. Because it shows us who the Son of God who came in the flesh truly is. He's our shepherd, he's our servant. But he's our king, our true king, our forever king. He's the one who is ruling over his church right now. He's the head and the king of his church. But he also gently leads us. He nurtures us. He cares for us. He comes after us when we stray. He feeds us when we're hungry. He leads us to water when we thirst. Jesus Christ is King David's greater son. And he died and he was raised back to life so that you and I, so that we can live on with him for eternity. There is no earthly king. There's no earthly prince. There's no earthly ruler who can promise you that and deliver upon it. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised it. He has done it. And he will return in glory where everyone will recognize him as the one true king. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the picture that we have, even in the Old Testament, of what is truly true, what is really real of the Jerusalem that awaits us, of the place where Jesus Christ has already gone to prepare for us room. We thank You, Lord, that You are patient and that You are patiently enduring the sins of humankind so that the full number of Your elect can be gathered in before Jesus Christ comes back in glory. We long for that day when all of our brothers and sisters will be gathered in and all together we can look upon your glorious face. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. And we pray, help us not to lose sight of the truth that you will return. We pray that by your spirit you would continue to make us ready for that day that you would give us a longing to go home to heavenly Jerusalem. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.